Hello and welcome to this episode 20 of the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack and I'm recording this on Friday the 10th of February 2017. I'm back in London now, I was in Amsterdam at the start of the week meeting some of the independent publishers who are really driving on the magazine scene over there. Listen out over the next few weeks and I'll be turning some of those conversations into podcasts. But for this week I'm speaking to Anja Aronofsky-Kromberg the editor of Vestoy magazine. I'm a massive fan of Vestoy. It basically is a magazine that asks what would a fashion mag look like if it was being made by someone who felt very conflicted about the whole fashion industry. And it's a really, really interesting mag, not just for the words and the pictures that are on the page, but also because of the, the production of the thing. So the actual shape of the magazine. Um, you'll hear me talking to Anya about the cover, which features a, a very uh, well-endowed figure. The whole theme of this issue is masculinities, and so they chose the San Abbas Giant, uh, which is like a, a Neolithic sculpture here in the UK as their cover. And it was lovely speaking to her and, and seeing this really famous British landmark reinterpreted as a kind of David Shridley uh, artwork. If you look at the, the album artwork cover on this episode, we're, we're using the giant as that. So if you're not familiar with it, you can see what it looks like there. Also check the stack blog and I'll post some pictures of the cover and the special secret bit that's hidden behind the cover. Of course, it's London Fashion Week starting at the end of next week, so this is kind of timely for the podcast to be going out. Uh, but no matter when you're listening to this, I hope you enjoy this interview with Anya Aronofsky-Kromberg. <laughs> uh, so I'm here with Anya Aronofsky-Kromberg, the editor of Vestoy. And now we've got all of our pronunciations sorted for these difficult <laughs> words for English people like me. Absolutely. <laughs> How are you well. doing, Anya? Very well, thank you. Um, thank you very much for coming along to speak to us. A pleasure. Um, so Vestoy is a fashion magazine. Uh, yeah, exactly. I am not naturally given to fashion. Mm -hmm. And yet this magazine is every year... I, I see it, it comes out like sort of end of the year, start of the year kind of time and it's it's become, it's, it's sort of like a, an extra Christmas because I know that this thing is going to come out and I'm just going to lose myself in it for the next few weeks. Thank you so much for saying that, Steve. Yeah. Can you describe it, for, for, for people who've not seen the magazine, mm. can you tell us what you do with it? I shall try, um, though I'll like preface the attempt even by saying I find it so difficult to give, like, you know, to to reduce what I do to that, like, elevator type, uh, um, I don't know, 20 second thing. But basically, I want, like, I want the story to be an alternative to what you would otherwise think of when you hear the term fashion magazine. So it's, it doesn't look like a magazine. It probably looks more like uh, a book. It doesn't have advertising. It doesn't have uh, fashion shoots. This is even funny that I was starting by saying all the things that it doesn't have. Right, exactly. <laughs> but actually, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, those things are important because those were the things that really frustrated me when I was reading fashion magazines. I love fashion and 
I kind of hate fashion also. So that's just a big. Um, I think it's like how do you um, how do you do fashion when you feel terribly conflicted about it, and that's what I'm trying to do with Vestoy in a way. It's it was um, also um, it's also a kind of attempt to find a more approachable way of dealing with academic writing about fashion. So that was also uh, was and still is um, an important part of uh, my work, I think. Um, but I, I just I think um, fashion is just so often. I feel that it's the kind of most maligned part of uh, of culture in a way, and I uh, and I would like to um, bring a more considered approach, I suppose. Um, I mean, there's a lot of words in Vestoy, which is also not something that you usually find in magazines, fashion magazines, because they tend to be much more heavy on the imagery. Um, so yeah, that's it. And then every, I mean, an, another part of the job is, for me, is to work to these themes. I mean, I've noticed it's become a really... Um, popular way of approaching magazine making and, and it makes sense to me I think because you have like that is sort of what differentiates making something of paper like publishing a magazine as opposed to having a site you know you want to justify all the um, money all the money that goes into printing paper these days so working to a theme I think for an editor gives you a sense of control I suppose I, I don't know if con Control is, uh, I mean, I'm a bit of a control freak, so I guess it is control in my case. Like, <laughs> you know, you get to guide the the reader through your or our point of view, you know, or the group that makes the magazine's point of view on a topic. So um, in and, that and sense... For, for this issue, you've chosen masculinities. Yes. And very importantly, plural masculinities. Indeed. Yes. So, so tell us why that became the theme of this one? <clears throat> well, um, actually it came from, so I work, I'm a senior research fellow at London College of Fashion and at LCF, um, uh, in fact this is also actually uh, um, I think a worthwhile thing of pointing out that um, the, the research position I have at LCF also allows me now to, to publish the story because that's another question like I get asked when people dare to like speak about the money aspect. Yeah, how do you do how it? Do you do how it? do you do this? No advertising, where does the money come from? I always want to say like, you know, I uh, grow pot on the side, but <laughs> I don't know if anyone would believe me. I look too straight. So the fact is that I'm an academic and um, LCF um, put some money behind uh, the story. That's, uh, so I have a budget to put um, an issue out a year. So the university um, were also creates um, on a regular basis what they call hubs. So these hubs are topics that um, we feel are important at um, a given time. And um, right now, masculinities in the plural is something that the whole university is looking at. And so I heard about this from one of my colleagues. And, um, and I asked to be involved because I just... 
I hadn't really thought, you know, as a woman, you know, I'm so uh, navel-gazing, I don't think so much about men. Yeah, those ones over there, no. we're not interested in those ones. Too important to think about us, you know, the ladies. So, so actually, it, it just occurred to me that with all this focus that has gone into um, uh, womanhood or, or feminism or... Um, or and, and I guess also considering how focused on women the fashion industry is, um, or the fashion system, I guess, even larger, fashion is so associated with women. Yeah, why not look at men? Like, what, what, what... I started with this question, what makes a man? And then I tried to apply that question to garments. How do men see themselves? Um, it was a challenge. Mm, mm. And, and yeah. within that, you so you you pull out certain themes like there's um, hardness or there's control mm. or there, there are these other things that men might be trying to say about themselves mm. through the clothes that they wear and mm-hmm. the way that they dress. And it seems to me that some of the on some of the levels, like the, this idea of what is a man. There's some fairly uh, simple stuff that I feel like I'm aware of in day-to-day life. So, like what? So, so the, so the first story, uh, the difference between bo- dressing boys in blue mm-hmm. and girls in pink. So, so yeah, I, yeah, I've yeah. I've got a little boy, and we're quite careful that well, when he was a baby, we didn't dress him in mm-hmm. blue, and now he's got some pink stuff because, like, you know, this is how to help people be a bit happier and like you know, not so restricted, right? But then there's mm-hmm. other stuff in there that really. Mm-hmm surprised me so there's like the, so okay so there's yeah. the story on the, 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 the <laughs> men's dress reform party oh, which yeah. was the uh, party that grew up in the interwar years with men who were trying to break out of their kind of starched collars and bowler hats and I thought that piece was so well done because it's the writer providing this really entertaining and informative mm. look Annabella Pollen, she's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, something that happened, and she kind of allows you to sort of like laugh along with this thing. Mm. And right at the end, the last couple of sentences are, but do you know what? Don't get too carried away with laughing at this because look at where we are now. And actually, mm. men are way more restricted in the things that it's socially <laughs> acceptable for them to wear mm-hmm. than women are. And that I thought that was really cleverly done. The, yeah. It shows that actually that imbalance absolutely is there. Yeah, no, no, you're... There were some... There are a couple of other articles that I found. Like, there's an article on... Did you read the one about beard fashion in mm. the... I really like this piece. So it's a, an American uh, scholar, Sean uh, Trainer. He... I mean, his, he's, this is his topic, in fact. Um, and he looks at how um, in the 19th century... Um, men who um, like the fashion then started being men um, being clean shaven and at some point was it I think it's in was in the mid 19th century um, uh, the the musical Sweeney Todd came out or the book first um, and then and other books like it so Sweeney Todd is a famous story the murderous barber right and I think with so at this time, cities were also growing at a very, very fast pace. And suddenly you were surrounded by strangers. You didn't know the man who, um, who shaved you or cut your hair. And suddenly, I think, 
collectively it's almost like this um, group what men in big cities um, kind of awoke to the fact that okay I have a stranger holding a blade to my throat and I'm helpless and also importantly the men who would do the shaving typically were men of lower uh, social status in in America the barbers were often black in England they would have been working class men and so there was a very great deal also of class and race fear and antagonism I think Mm. also involved and the fear that the underclass might rebel (laughs) and so um so being clean shaven started going out of fashion um, the, at this time also shaving yourself like the kind of blades you could buy to shave at home they were too ill-developed so, the so people would had to himself. literally use the cutthroat razor which was much harder to handle right and, yeah exactly yeah. and so um, and but the, the interesting thing is so hence beards started becoming fashionable but what I think uh, Sean does so well is in this piece and what I like so much is that he explains how um, of course men these men would and we are still still the same like you would you they would never have been able to admit and maybe they probably weren't even conscious why all these things were happening so instead you you had to like instead of um, kind of admitting or becoming conscious that um, these beards grew out of uh, a fear of you know the strange other or um, instead which then would make these men seem weak mm. because be, being afraid for a man is often equated with being weak so instead these big beards that became popular became a symbol of virility and of you know the rugged outdoors man and um, I, I just think it's so fantastic how there's so much um, psychology to be um, like that you can understand if you really start looking at changes in fashion like yeah so there were lots of things that I was surprised about as well with the issue but that's those are the best absolutely absolutely. as an editor you you want to be researching you want to be bringing new things to yeah absolutely you you mentioned earlier that you um, don't run a lot of photography uh, with the stories so you have photo stories Mm -hmm. but then if you if you've got a text based piece then you don't typically break that up with pictures and Mm. you you have some really clever ways of going about it I think so there's the piece on neckties where the columns of text are set to look like a necktie I know I love that I cannot take any credit for that because that was uh, those are um, Vestois art directors uh, Valerio and Sara Tamagnini of uh, Studio Blanco they're Italians they they, they kind of they uh, yeah that was their idea that last issue we did they did something other, something else that I really liked. The issue was on failure, and the article I'm thinking of was an article. It was an interview with a New York dry cleaner talking about his work, and uh, they set this on a page with a kind of stain on it. Yeah, it was just really they're 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 great like that. Uh, and you, so then you also have a piece on uh, underwear models, mm-hmm. and in this piece. The, there are these like long, detailed descriptions of the the physique of this man mm. and the pose that he's standing in, and you, like normally, ordinarily, I'd be thinking, show me the picture. I want to see. Mm. I want to see this. But actually, you you do it with the words instead. Yeah, but that's the point. I like. I was thinking about this um, actually 
There's the last chapter of uh, this issue um, is the interview chapter. And again, I, had, I was having this conversation with Valerio and Sara because, so we've interviewed like maybe 12, 13 quite different types of men. Uh, the artist Grayson Perry, um, the un- former underwear model, Marcus Schenkenberg, he was really big in the 90s, he was a Calvin Klein model. Um, uh, Rick Owens, the designer, uh, the drag king, Murray Hill, um, who else did we look at? Jay Alexander, yeah, he's, I like this a lot. He was a, a catwalk, he's a catwalk coach on America's Next Top, top Model. Um, anyway, all these men, very different from one another. And again, it's like the natural thing in a magazine is publish the portrait. But I don't, I, I, that's the thing, it's like, I much prefer when, it's like, why do you have to do that? Then it's like, the, the nice thing is you, in these interviews, for instance, you read all these men talking about why they dress and look the way they do. And I like that you have to imagine it. Yeah. Because if you had a picture, it's almost like you, you just judge the picture. You don't pay attention to the words as much. Yeah. And again, I don't, in the interview section, I don't think, mm. it, I'll tell you the one place, mm. the one story where I missed the pictures. Mm. And it was the, the interview with the wrestling guys. Oh yeah. So the so these fellas who live somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the US and yeah. they make the costumes that wrestlers wear. Mm. And I was reading about this thing, I was just thinking, show me the costumes. Yeah. I wanna see these things. They sound amazing. <laughs> yeah, you're right. This approach doesn't always work unfortunately. But it works enough for us it to works uh, enough, yeah. <laughs> but I think like I think the thing I've I've um played and tried a lot of different approaches uh, or relations relationships between text and image and I like at, at the very beginning of Vestoy so Vestoy this is our seventh issue seven years now the first issues I had fashion shoots I was trying to find a way of I even worked with models and stylists and um, and I just um, I mean the, we never had this was my thinking at the time like instead of having uh, this season's fashionable fashion, high fashion clothes. We always had then um, like clothes from wherever it didn't matter. They could belong to the model. They could belong belong to someone on the team, or they could be fashion clothes. And we then never published the clothing credits that you otherwise see in in fashion magazines, you know, to propel you to go and buy something of this brand. So I was trying to make. Uh, to, I was always trying to think of a different way of dealing with images in fashion. Mm. But the thing is that then I just, maybe it's a cop out. I don't know because at some point I got to I just never felt happy. I just always thought that those stories they just always looked um, like bad copies of stuff I'd already seen somewhere or they just I just didn't know and we didn't know how to like doing a fashion image well is so difficult I think much harder I think than the, the approach that we have now where we use much more archival images and the, the shoot we, sh- we commission one shoot um, every issue mm. now and those pictures are not at all your classical mm. uh, fashion pictures they usually don't have people in them and they're more a sort of meditation on the theme right but fashion imagery it's like uh, typically um they are very um, high production value mm. shoots, and that's already something that I don't. I'm not really into. I mean, a, I don't have the means, but also b, 
I, it's just uh, I, I, I don't. It seems like a kind of waste in a way. <laughs> Funny. And, and I guess this is something that actually the mainstream can do very well. They can, you know, they, they can do big lavish shoots. Yeah. So then I think, like, as an indie publication, it's like what I was able to do always felt like some kind of cheap attempt to look right. like yeah, something yeah, yeah, that those yeah. big magazines can do so much better. But then I also did. It was then there were other problems with. It's like so. If you work with models, what should those models look like? What uh, like what body shape should they be? What age should they be? Like what is my um, I don't want, I don't know if it's responsibility exactly, but what what kind of what um, kind of uh, um, what is my opinion? Let's say on what a fashion model should or could look like um, I mean I think as a publisher and this isn't just for a fashion magazine publisher of course it's like you you have to be so aware that what you put in your pages will be uh, looked at by people who will see that as your standpoint you know in some way what I'm doing with the story is like this is this is what this in, in these 300 pages this is like what I stand for at this point in time. This is my ideology. This is my uh, like uh, uh, manifesto, if you like. Um, and I just, um, I just couldn't find a good way to solve mm. that. Like it's like whichever way I went, it just felt forced or not good enough aesthetically or not good enough uh, ideologically or. So at some point I just figured maybe I take just a break from that and just try and use the images much more as a kind of much more broad meditation on whatever theme it is mm. that we're dealing with and mm. try and use the images more as juxtapositions to the text rather than kind of illustrations of a text. Yeah. yeah. And so speaking of defining images, I'm looking at the cover now and mm. we have, I think, a, a bit of misdirection on your part because there's a very prominent penis mm -hmm. <laughs> on this cover yep. image. Yeah. And on the, the special right. the special hidden cover, we have uh, the, the same penis inverted. So the, so the penis is very central to this. Yeah. But actually, in the magazine itself, so I mean, there's obviously there's the underwear model story, mm -hmm. and you know, it, there's references there. But I don't think it's really in the magazine in the rest of it. It, mm -hmm. it feels like you've kind of you've nodded towards something and then actually gone in a different direction. Yeah. With it. Do you think that works? Yeah, not? I love it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was also like we, of course, we were looking at different um, like cover alternatives, and Valeria and Sarah had lots of suggestions, and this. Um, uh, illustration of your like um, archetypal caveman you know because not just does he have a very large erect penis he also wields a huge uh, club right so and he looks kind of a bit aggressive and he's yeah but uh, the <laughs> what I really liked about this is that this is in fact 
it looks sort of like when I first saw it, it I thought, ah, oh, that looks like a kind of David Shrigley drawing or something. Oh, no, I, I think any, any, any British reader would recognize this straight away. Yeah. So, so, the, so actually, I say that though. So what's the, do you know the name of the... Well, it's the Cern Abbas Giant. That's right, his name. Right. So the Cern Abbas Giant for any non-British uh, listener or reader is a huge chalk drawing on a hillside in Dorset. It's fifth, more, I think it's 55 meters uh, tall with an 11 meters phallus, you know, and, um, and you, of course, obviously you can only see him from above. And, and I thought also, because I've lived many years in, in Britain, so I, for me, it was like, I, I kind of recognized, I've seen this before, but Valerian Sara, uh, uh, the art directors being Italian, they were like, this is so funny when they found <laughs> it online, Googling around. And they were like, yeah. And, I've, and because, yeah, so I like this thing that the drawing, some people will cotton onto it immediately. Mm. Others mm. will have no idea what they're looking at and be hopefully a bit puzzled. I, I like just to help those readers a little, I published a little blurb about uh, uh, who he is right. just in the colophon. Okay, I didn't Same see about, that. like, yeah, because I thought you, I mean, for the curious reader, you know, the ones that read the really small print, they'll be given this gift, you know, they'll right. see, like, yeah, 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 and yeah. for the others, I like the, I do like that, exactly that juxtaposition that you were talking about earlier, that such a striking image on this cover, all you see is, the cover is really dark blue with this pink, um, uh, What's it called? Title? Uh, Vestoy in pink. Uh -huh. So you have the blue pink, the super archetypal thing going on, and then you have this stereotype, aggressive caveman, um, and then this really nice. I think um, if you open the um, the dust jacket quote from Hamlet, mm -hmm. um, it goes, "What a piece of work is a man." It's a uh, it's a conversation that he has with uh, his friends Guildenstern and what is the other one called? Let's see, I did write this down as well. Is it Rosencrantz? Yes, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, more familiar with Shakespeare than I am. <laughs> Um, and, the, and and so then the so you, you take the you take the dust jacket back yeah and you have the the same figure but mm. with the inverted penis. I'm going to put pictures of all this on mm. the stack blog so anyone listening can see this. Mm -hmm. The and I was saying to my wife when I bought the Mac, um, ah ah, let's see what the thing is they've done. Let's see because there's <laughs> always a thing with the production. So yeah. whether it's through the binding or or something like that. And I couldn't find it at first. And it took me the whole journey home to realize that underneath the dust jacket there was a special thing. Yeah, that's uh, Valerian Sara again. Yeah, they're good. Really good. Um, yeah, I like this. Like, we've decided now, uh, together with them, to, like, the first few, uh, the first five issues of the story, um, the difference between the issues was much more uh, pronounced because they would be different sizes the uh, font that says Vestoy would always be different, always different fonts placed on, uh, differently on the front cover. Or like we tried and experimented much more with um, making the object itself a very direct um, take on the topic. So uh, I remember we did an issue, uh, one of the earlier ones was on shame. 
and the whole issue was kind of an experiment. We I remember we used different fonts from pink, from blush pink to deep red, and the cover was um, kind of it had a sensor censorship uh, type um, uh, rectangle on the on the front, and then behind that we had um, these kind of pixelated, really large pixels that were when you want to blur someone's face out. And, I mean, there were loads of things like that going on with, with that issue. But um, now, uh, starting from issue six, the one on failure and this one uh, going forward, we, we decided to uh, keep this slightly larger format and try and work the difference in between the issues in a more subtle way. Uh, just to to kind of see how I somehow this feels a bit more grown up to me. <laughs> <laughs> a weird thing to say. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm grown up now. Well, I, I like it a lot and uh, thank you very much for coming and talking about it. Thank you to you. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this one, please go to iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Search Stack Magazines and you should find all of our previous episodes in there. As I said at the beginning, next week's episode is going to come from Amsterdam. I think we'll probably do the panel discussion that we had. Uh, that featured the guys from Vestoy Magazine uh, and McGuffin Magazine and the Ateneum uh, Bookshop. Uh, so if that sounds like the sort of thing that you'd like to hear, uh, follow us and we'll just deliver that straight to you when it comes out. Um, and I haven't done this for ages, but just as a, a little test to see kind of who's listening and who might like to subscribe to Stack. Um, if all this sounds like the sort of thing you'd like and you want us to deliver a different independent magazine to your door every month, use the code PODCAST and you will get our best rates, literally better than any of the discounts that we do, um, only for people who listen to the end of this podcast. And I'll be watching those codes to see whether anyone uses it. It'll be interesting. Um, okay, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week.